This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, I'm Kat Sarfis, Forever Bookseller at Barnes & Noble. Today we are joined by the lovely Ava Reed. Ava is the author of the highly acclaimed and best-selling The Wolf and the Woodsman and Juniper and Thorn. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Really excited. Many of us, included myself, um, fell in love with you and your writing, reading The Wolf and the Woodsman, um, which became quite a darling on the TikTok scene. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of fire and passionate fandom there. Um, what was that experience or what has that experience been um, like for you? Because you're still living in it. Um, particularly around your debut? Well, it's funny. I'm not on TikTok at all. So I really only experience it secondhand when my friends like send me these TikTok videos that they see on their feed on my book. It's very sweet. So I got like a perfectly, you know, tailored, watered down experience of TikTok that's very pleasant. Um, and I'm insulated from a lot of the kind of negative things that go along with that. Um, so it's been nice, but I think most authors who are doing their second books feel similarly um, in that it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because you mm-hmm. have so many people who enjoyed your debut and you want to, you know, you want to speak to that same audience and you want to hopefully, you know, replicate the success to some degree, but you also want to grow as a writer and, you know, you're never going to be able to, you're never going to be able to please everyone. And I think when there is such a powerful expectation from readers it it does feel like a lot of pressure especially because juniper and thorn is quite different from the wolf and the woodsman um so i would say a blessing and a curse it's really nice to see that some people's enthusiasm about the wolf and the woodsman has really carried over from juniper and thorn and people have really so far shown up for it in a really amazing way um <laughs> i mean i would say when I talk to a lot of authors and especially people who are in it, I it feel it does it definitely feels like more of like a positive experience. I think, yes, there's just a lot, but to your point, um, there's now that expectation, which kind of sets the bar. I'm sure when readers come to Juniper and Thorne, uh, they're not going to be disappointed. Um, it is. And, and I love that it's sort of, you know, in that same world. So it's just like, you know, you're just continuing continuing that love um that you that you sort of got from that first read so retellings speaking of you know what's what's going crazy on book talk right now so these retellings reimaginings around fairy tales uh mythology folklore classics um so they're all really having this this moment right now which is is really wonderful to see to see the excitement for these titles um what what is it about these stories that sort of capture the imagination um and keep us coming back i thought a lot about this because the wolf and the woodsman um has been called a fairy tale retelling which it isn't really um but i'm okay i'm okay with that um <laughs> but i yeah but with juniper and thorn i set out to write a fairy tale retelling and so i really actually became like very obsessed with this idea of like what makes a good fairy tale retelling and why they're currently so successful in the industry and publishing. And what I think I can say is that we 
come to stories um, that are familiar to us. And we want to see these, you know, motifs and themes and symbols kind of reoccur. But at the same time, I think fairy tales are almost by definition things that do not conform to, you know, modern conceptions of storytelling. There are really no characters as we would kind of think of them today. Um, There are archetypes, but there aren't really characters. And those are two different things. So I think there's a ton of room for reinterpretation. I think that's a huge part of the appeal is just the ability to really take something that at the same time is like this huge something that's so enormous in our culture and so well-known, then also put your own spin on it um, in a way that can be really, really compelling and with tools that, you know, we have as modern authors that, you know, didn't these storytelling tools that didn't exist um, in the past and ways of thinking um, that didn't really exist in the past. I think it's interesting when you were talking just now about about characters, um, particular, I think, you know, it within even within mythology, within folklore, within fairy tales, um, perspective. You know, and oftentimes that sort of female perspective is just interesting. We'll just leave it at that. Um, or it's just you know, it's obviously a lot of these stories were kind of told from uh, a different perspective, from a male perspective, and um, it's uh, just kind of seeing these characters almost get their due or to be flushed out in a way um, that just sort of the modern readers are are interested you know it's thinking of like Penelope I mean how many like you know she was she is such a compelling character but you know you you she's very sort of one-dimensional and you kind of you know she is what she is and then you know there's all these now sort of reinterpretations of who she was and expanding her story and I mean that's just one example I mean that and you know they've been done uh within fairy tales within folklore and 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 such not and um, it is really interesting uh, to be able to say, yeah, the story was great and I loved it when I was younger. Um, but I really, I always wanted to know what happened to that character. I always, you know, there was always more to that. And, and to your point, you know, kind of using fresh voices, new tools um, to sort of explore that. So yeah, I think it's, it's just really exciting. Um, and I think, you know, your exploration of that mm-hmm. in, in Juniper and Thorne is, is really wonderful. Um, so in Wolf on the Woodsman and Juniper and Thorn, um, you sort of weave, talking about mythology, so you sort of weave this uh, beautiful tapestry. You've got, you know, ancient magic, there's historical fantasy, uh, folklore, um, with religious and uh, cultural tensions sort of, you know, woven in. You tackle politics, identity, uh, xenophobia. So what is it about fantasy, you know, or these these sort of mythological retellings, retellings um, that offers up this sort of perfect canvas um, to explore these stories. Um, and I have a second part to that. I'm kind of dying to know uh, the research that that brought you to them. But let's just go. Let's let's start with the first. Okay. So. I was actually just I was thinking about this a lot last night because I kind of figured this like might come up um, in the interview. And I think one of the hallmarks for a long time of fantasy has been a sort of timelessness. And you hear that term applied to fantasy a lot, like, oh, this feels so timeless. And so much classic fantasy exists in this sort of timeless state where, you know, whatever fantasy world it's set in has kind of always existed and it's always been there. And, you know, it 
with the assumption that it will always continue to be. And that's something that has I've always been really interested in kind of disrupting that and kind of setting my books during periods of like enormous change and upheaval. Like I'm really interested in the idea of a fantasy world that has not always been the same because that's not how the world works. And <laughs> yes. kind of taking apart these things that are really taken for granted in fantasy, like this idea that, oh, there's this country full of you know, green people and green people come from the green land and they all have the same exact beliefs as each other and they all have the same relationship to their identity and this state has always existed and it's kind of this like natural <laughs> thing that has grown out of the earth. Um, and that's really not true. And states are created, you know, through very different means and through violence. Um, and that's something that I don't see too often. Um, I'm not going to, you know, say that I'm the only person that has ever explored this far from it. But I think that I don't, I didn't see that too much in fantasy. So I was really interested in exploring that and really interested in kind of exploring the marginalized within that, right? Because when you're building a state and you're crafting an identity, inherently, it's going to be somewhat exclusionary. Um, so I became really interested in writing from that sort of marginal perspective, which again, I don't think is done, in my opinion, as much as it should be in fantasy. Um, yeah, and I think there's just something really fascinating and compelling about upsetting the sort of timelessness of fantasy as a genre. I love that. Yes, all of that. <laughs> um, okay, so then that, that second part, what was the research that brought you here? I actually started like almost backwards when I was thinking about The Wolf in the Woodsman, where what got me interested in Hungary is actually modern Hungarian politics um, and kind of the complexity of modern Hungarian identity and kind of how you can see the threads of both Christianity and, you know, this pre-Christian religion woven into contemporary Hungarian identity. And that's true for, I mean, a lot of countries in Europe, very, very true in Eastern Europe in particular. And you know, nationalism in Eastern Europe is very heavily tied to these pre-Christian traditions and kind of this neo-paganism. Um, so that was really fascinating to me. And then I kind of looked back and I started, you know, reading about this period of history and kind of the transition from, you know, pre-Christian paganism to, you know, Christianity and how that completely aligns with the creation of, you know, what we would call the modern Hungarian state. So I, again, like I started actually from the present and then I looked kind of backwards, which I don't know if that's, you know, kind of a normal <laughs> method of world building, but that's what I did. You know, I think a lot of times when you know, you're obviously we're living, this is the time we're in and it is sort of that curiosity of how did we get here? History inevitably repeats itself. And so kind of to be able to go back and say, you know, where did this start? And then, yeah, and see all those threads that then, you know, bring us here, continue to cause problems or continue, you know, to, to <laughs> shake up these systems. So aside from the folklore and the mythology, which there's, there's so much there, there's a lots of very dark Gothic and horror elements um, swirl throughout Wolf and, and Juniper. Uh, so Gothic literature um, was probably uh, my first true love. And um, so I have to ask, what are your Gothic inspirations? What were your Gothic inspirations? 
one of my favorite books in the world is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. And I think (laughs) the influence is very clear if you've read that book and obviously if you've read Juniper. um, Mm -hmm. Yes. Shirley Jackson is absolutely my biggest um, kind of writerly inspiration. Um, (laughs) And when I first started thinking about doing a retelling of the juniper tree, I started thinking about what makes it so disturbing to people because it kind of has this like unofficial title, like, oh, this is the darkest Grimm's fairy tale. And I was like, okay, well, why? You have violence against children in a lot of fairy tales. You have a lot of, you know, even Red Riding Hood, the grandmother is eaten by a wolf and then the wolf is disemboweled. I'm like, that's horrifying. <laughs> like, that's so messed up. But you don't hear that, you know, called a dark fairy tale. Um, Hansel and Gretel, you have this kind of cannibalism aspect, but you don't typically hear this being, you know, this doesn't get the like kind of title of darkest fairy tale. I was like, so what is so disturbing about this fairy tale? And I really think that it is like the intimacy. It's the fact that this, these horrible violences are going on within a single family. It's, you know, these relationships that are supposed to be so intimate are actually so incredibly fraught and so, you know, threaded with violence. And that's what's so disturbing to people. And once I kind of thought about that, I was like, well, (laughs) this can't be, this retelling can't be an epic fantasy like The Wolf and the It has to be, you know, a tight contained setting. It has to kind of has to be a gothic horror because it's about, it's really just a fairy tale about domestic abuse. And I don't think that at least I couldn't make that work as an epic fantasy. I had to kind of put it in a gothic setting and that makes sense to me. And I think that that to me feels like it's carrying the heart of the original fairy tale, even if obviously I've taken plenty of liberties. Yes, I think, no, it it is definitely, you know, when you get into Juniper and Thorn, it's, yeah, I feel like the tone and the atmosphere is sort of set right away. And you do have this almost like this pit in your stomach, you know, when you're reading, reading these characters and, um, and the father, and you're just like, Oh, this is not, <laughs> this is not going well. <laughs> um, it is true. Um, you know, when you read the, when you go back to the original, I think, you know, we're obviously you know, lots of fairy tales, uh, have been watered down through time. Um, and how we're sort of first introduced to them usually is in that sort of watered down version. And then when you go, and go back and you you read them. Um, yeah, it is sort of um, who gets the award for like the worst, worst mother, <laughs> worst father. <laughs> um, Juniper and Thorn and uh, the Wolf and the Woodsman. Uh, so they take place. So they're obviously different times and places, but they are both set in the same world, this world that you've created. So what is your favorite thing about this world that you've created? This sounds maybe over simple, but I wanted to create a world with actual like diversity because I was reading a lot of Eastern European fantasy and like so much of it is like so great. As like a Jewish person from Eastern Europe, I never saw this kind of element of like the actual like ethnic diversity of Eastern Europe um, and the cultural diversity of Eastern Europe. And you kind of saw these like blank you know wintry foresty settings and i think that that's like very the stereotypical you know depiction of eastern europe um and i wanted to kind of and obviously that exists and there's a reason why that's so salient (laughs) because that is a lot of you know (laughs) you know what eastern europe is and particularly russia but hungary and ukraine both are geographically quite different um they don't have the same you know flora and fauna 
Um, and also all of Eastern Europe is and has historically been home to these like indigenous um, ethnic minorities. You know, there's Jews, there's Roma, there's Tatars, there's all these people that don't get represented in fantasy because it's like, you know, it's either this kind of active bias or it's just like this lack of knowledge and, you know, an unconscious bias. And I was like, well, (laughs) why can't I create a fantasy world that at least attempts to kind of represent, you know, the actual diversity of Eastern Europe in a way that, you know, a lot of this mainstream, like Eastern European fantasy, like (laughs) didn't quite, didn't quite do it for me. Um, So I wanted to, I wanted to do something kind of different and I wanted to represent, you know, my family's history as well that I didn't see um, reflected there and how influential, you know, Jewish culture actually has been over, you know, in Eastern Europe in ways that are, you know, both actively being erased and, you know, unconsciously ignored. Speaking of those sort of those cultural tensions, you know, and what they've gone through in a way, you know, all these sort of these different minority groups and how they've had to sort of live and, you know, adapt. And it's, you know, and I think particularly um, in, you know, Juniper and and Thorne and, um, and the father, but his xenophobia, you know, like his, like just right, right off the bat and how he speaks to all these minorities. And it is, it is very telling and it, it's obviously timely because it's, you know, something that sort of we're still very much entrenched with, but to see that it, how, you know, it goes back and how it's been this struggle, it's been this consistent, um, way of life for so many people in that region, the historical contents, um, and just sort of those, um, you know, fantasy is so political um, and being able to sort of have that canvas for that is just very, very interesting. I feel like you get a good, like you get like the fantasy and you get a history lesson mm-hmm. sort of wrapped up. And then um, maybe that goes back to why um, I think why there's so many fans of this sort of genre. I think it's it's nice to sort of be able to sort of be able to play in in a way, but then also sort of absorb and learn something new, learn, uh, you know, have that representation, um, have that mirror, whatever you want to call it. So you've created this world, you know, wanting, you know, what your, your favorite parts of it. So now, um, so you have two books in this world. You have plans for future stories sort of set, set in the same, um, space. Not at the moment, no. My next book out will actually be my young adult fantasy debut um, in September of 2023, uh, which I'm really excited about. And that's kind of a dark academia, literary mystery thriller, still figuring out the elevator pitch on this book. <laughs> like the fantasy version of Possession by A.S. Byatt, which is one of my favorite books ever. Very nice. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, no plans right now for future books on the world, but I would love to return to this world at some point. And I think that there's so much that could still be done and can still be explored and a lot of, you know, things that I'm interested in digging into. Speaking of YA, there's, there is so much crossover between between, I don't know, you want to call, um, new adult, adult fantasy, um, YA. I kind of feel like a lot of the readers, it's just, they devour books, devour series. I I think we're just sort of hungry for these epic stories, these fantastical, you know, retellings. It's just this great space to kind of explore different themes. What interested you in, in YA and kind of making 
I mean, again, I, I, there's so much crossover, but that, that slight <laughs> leap, that jump, how was that? So it's interesting. I feel like I, so I'm like a very early Gen Z slash late millennial, depends on who you talk to. <laughs> I um, remember what like age chart. I love those. Yeah, it's like, this yeah. one's like, no, it starts at 1996. It's like, well, it starts this time. Yeah, I yeah. get you. So yeah, either one. Um, But I kind of feel like I quote unquote came of age and like the mm-hmm. golden age of YA. Like I remember reading Twilight, reading the Hunger Games, reading like the Hunger Games is absolutely like what got me interested in writing original fiction because up until then I was just writing fan fiction, which also like I feel like I grew up in such a great time period for fan fiction. And I yes. know so many of my friends who are the same age as me, like cut their teeth writing fan fiction and like these online forums and I think that you see that coming through so much in like the YA that's popular right now which is really awesome the amount of friends that I've actually you know bonded with over like the fact that we wrote warrior cats fan fiction when we were 11 on like (laughs) fanfiction.net like (laughs) is amazing it felt like very normal to me I wanted I wanted to write something for you know for teens and for my teenage self that I would have, you know, loved to read when I was a teenager. And I think that's a a very, very different task um, from writing uh, adult fiction. And yeah, and it it takes some, you know, considerations. And there were definitely moments when I was writing a study and drowning my YA debut when I, I felt I actually like felt the real fork in the road where I was like, I can go this direction. And that will make it an adult (laughs) book. But I, you know, I'm going to choose to kind of go this direction to make it YA. But I think that it's very like, I felt a very different sense of responsibility when I was writing the characters because obviously in you know Juniper and Thorn Marlinchen goes through some very very horrible things and not that I think that these things have no place and why I absolutely you know disagree with that but I felt like I needed to give readers a little more reassurance mm-hmm. in my YA book that like there would be a soft landing and I wanted them to kind of trust me more as an author. Interesting that you talked about fan fiction because I actually had that I had like on my my list of things to discuss because <laughs> there are so many like, you know, the millennial and Gen Z or, you know, millennial slash Gen Z, however, wherever bucket you sort of um, put yourself in, uh, writers who kind of got their first uh, whether it was like taste for writing, you know, cut their teeth, they got the start. Um, it was fan fiction. It's interesting to hear you say that. I was actually going to ask you if you had any, is there any fan fiction floating out there in the universe that you either never want anyone to read or you, (laughs) um, or that you, that you want to talk about. It was such a a way to sort of express yourself and, Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of get that, get those juices flowing, those writing, you know, inspiration, uh, Yeah, definitely. I think I honestly think that like a big part of why retellings are so popular is because like they're they follow a similar logic to fan fiction where it's like you feel this kind of dissatisfaction with the current canon and you want to like, quote unquote, fix it fan fiction. I remember it was so popular where it's like this ending was so horrible. I can't believe this to this character. This is my fix it fan fiction. This character, my favorite character is going to get justice, you know, within the narrative. Um, so I think that same mindset really, you know, exists when it comes to these retellings, um, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, there's definitely I, no idea if it's still, you know, <laughs> around archives somewhere. <laughs> there's definitely the Warrior Cats fan fiction. 
definitely some Hunger Games fan fiction. I think fan fiction is awesome. And I think it's really cool that we're in this kind of place where we can acknowledge how influential it's been on like the current canon in SFF and in romance as well. Um, in genre romance, you really see that a lot too, which is cool. You know, I think at one point, it's nice to see that it's sort of, it's getting a little bit more recognition. I feel like even um, when I was younger, it was like, I remember kind of, you know, I loved Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Like that was where, that's where I wanted to be and just sort of like devoured all those stories. And like also like the art, it wasn't necessarily mainstream. It wasn't necessarily something that, um, yeah, that like, you know, you read it and maybe, you know, you talk to people where you knew you were in like a safe space where you're like, these are my other fellow <laughs> fan fiction. Yeah. Now it's, there are so many um, outlets and people are, are, you know, just writing it up, like getting it out there, like you were saying, like fix it, you know, um, essentially give the characters the, the story and the ending that they deserve versus what you know yeah. fans want. And I, I feel like there's, there's sometimes, I think, <laughs> definitely, yeah. um, you know, butt heads, uh, mm-hmm. but it, you know, um, so it's interesting when you talk about like that fix it because it's sort of like, yes, obviously, you know, the fans and they want to see certain, certain characters sort of evolve in a certain way, but at the same time, you know, it's like, well, there's a, there's a, from the, from the writer's perspective, there's a reason. Yeah. You know, and thought given into why, you know, these <laughs> yeah. characters have the arcs that they do. So yeah. I guess. And one of the things that I really like specifically wanted to do with Juniper and Thorn was like, because I was always the type of person in fandom who like, the characters that everyone else hated for being like weak and like whiny and like annoying, like those are always my favorite characters. <laughs> and like, <laughs> those are kind of like the side characters. And like, I don't know, I always like, I felt so defensive of them. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to write that kind of character, the kind of character who you usually don't see as the protagonist, um, who's not like, She's not like snarky and like cool. She's not, you know, super powerful. She's not. And there's nothing wrong with those types of characters. They can be super empowering and like really fun to read and write about. But I wanted to do something really different and like honor those characters that are kind of like. <laughs> yes, they give them so much chance to shine. <laughs> when you're writing, when you know, you're exploring fan fiction, it is, a, it is you know, opportunity to. Like, like you said, explore those characters that are not, not the typical protagonists, mm-hmm. not what everybody, you know, sort of thinks they want to see. But, you know, you know, it's not until you read the other side that you kind of mm-hmm. say, hmm, like this was, it was interesting to explore. And that, that's, again, I'm not going to give away too many spoilers, but that's exactly, yeah, in, in, in Juniper and Thorn that, you know, our, our main protagonist is not, you know, I think in the beginning, even I myself was sort of like, Okay, you know, like, come on, girl, like, get a little, like, you gotta, like, build yourself up a little yeah. bit here. But then, you know, obviously, understanding her circumstances don't necessarily, uh, or very much depict who she is. But I think there are so, just like, there are so many people to explore it, so many different personalities. I think um, being able to sort of depict uh, different facets of, of humanity, of, of who we are, um, and let everyone kind of have, have that moment. Um, it's just, it's interesting and it's just, um, you know, fresh perspectives and, and being able to step in someone else's shoes for a time. It's just, it's refreshing. And I think that's why, that's why we all love fantasy so much. I love to ask people what they're reading, but I need to go, I'm going to take it back for you because again, um, I've heard you numerous times talk about your sort of your original love, which is what you were saying before 
and we were talking about fan fiction, uh, is the Warriors, which I think <laughs> is so because like that series will never go, uh, never go away. Like it's going to live, it's going to live forever. Yes. So I think it's so funny when you hear people talk about, you know, how they think the early stages and now, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just kind of evolved into this whole, whole nother world. I don't even know what, what spinoffs and I, you know, there's so many just like the trees and branching off and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your earliest, uh, sort of fantasy and in a way like grimdark, uh, yeah, fantasy. those books um, are really dark. Like. Yes. Inspirations, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that, uh, there's so many books that, you know, they live in sort of that young reader space that mm-hmm. much like fairy tales, um, when you actually, you know, read their, the original forms, they're a lot darker. Um, I think when you're, you know, you're a child, you're just, it's, it's easy to just sort of, you know, accept what you're reading. And then when you get older, you're like, why, why was I, <laughs> I shouldn't have been reading that. Um, but yeah, so I, I need you to, I would love for you to wax, uh, wax poetic on your, on your love all for all things warriors. Yeah. It's actually really funny. So my editor for my YA stuff, she is actually the one who now edits these like warrior books, um, uh-huh. under the same imprint. So like during the auction for the book, I was like, full circle, it has to be Stephanie. Like this is just too perfect. <laughs> like I literally like texted my mom because she was the one who like when I was like 10, we would like go to Barnes and Noble and like she would buy me the book and I would literally read like literally read it on the way home while I was walking, like bumping into telephone poles, like <laughs> finishing it by the time I got home. Um, I mean, for every writer, there's like that book that like mm-hmm. made them a reader and also kind of made them a writer. And for whatever reason, those were the books um, for me. And like I said, they really are quite dark and they have a pretty like, you know, they're morally complex. They have a complex society. Um, it's really interesting. I remember being like so devastated by the deaths in those books. Like I can't like it was my first experience being so engaged in like a piece of media in a way where like because I was so engaged and because I was so like upset, I was like, I have to. I have to do something with all these emotions. I have to fix it somehow. Like my favorite character died. I was like, so, <laughs> so not, like nothing, <laughs> no, like two deaths in fiction have upset me more than Feathertail from the Warrior Cats and Finnick from the Hunger Games. Those are it. That was like, you can, you know, there are those nothing. moments in childhood yeah. that like, like, you know, where it's like, <laughs> you, you know, like this happened and I was forever changed. And those, <laughs> Yeah, I <laughs> don't underestimate the the power of of, of a character death, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're so impressionable. Yes, yeah, which is a reason why I don't like to write character deaths because I know how <laughs> like infuriating almost it can be for the reader and just like how upsetting. So I really like to, I don't know, make sure that if I do kill a character, it's for a very good reason. I think people they do get very um, attached to covers, to, um, packages of the books. So I have, um, my oh. <laughs> reader copy of Juniper. And is. This is like stunning. And it kind of just like grabs you and, you, and like, there's, it's just so fascinating and I'll pick it up and I'll happen to like glance and I'll, I'll see something in the cover that I didn't even mm-hmm. notice the first time. Were you in, involved in that process? Or you were saying like, it, it, it's really sort of important to you. So, um, how, yeah. how did you come about so I had a very, very specific vision for this cover in mind from the beginning. Um, 
I even had like the artist picked out in my mind. I literally wow. sent my editor a literal PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> exactly what I wanted the cover to look like. I'm like, I want it to be like an Art Nouveau design because it's set in the Victorian period. I want it to have this kind of like really eerie um, effect. I want it to be kind of like not busy, but very like ornate and elaborate because I think the pro style of the book is very elaborate yeah. and ornate. So I had, I like put all these pictures together in a PowerPoint and I like, you know, wrote all this down. And then I was like, this, this is the artist I want you to hire. I put a bunch of their work in the PowerPoint and I got really, really lucky that my editor just listened to everything I said. Um, and they ended up hiring the artist, Marlo Loon, who's amazing. And it, was, it really is. Yeah, they're absolutely incredible. Their work is amazing. And they, they completely understood what I was going for with the book. And we had actually like so many really deep and great conversations about kind of the themes of the book and like how that could be reflected in the art. And like, I cannot believe how <laughs> well they did in like capturing Marlinchen. It's just perfect. <laughs> it's like yeah. everything I wanted from a cover. Um, and I'm really, really lucky that my vision was executed. <laughs> so, I love that. I love that you're like, I have a mood board. Here it is. Yeah, literally. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> really? It, it, I mean, because that's, these are these aesthetics that, um, you know, draw people in. And, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not going to be the one to say you judge a book by its cover, but it is something that sort of draws you in. And then what you were saying before, just these memories, mm -hmm. um, you know, of the book and how, uh, you know, how we sort of um, connect with them. And this cover is stunning. And so, yeah, I had to, when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, that's a minute. I had to talk about the cover. What was the last book that you read that really just blew your mind? So I have a couple. I've been on a really good reading streak lately. So I read Matrix by Lauren Groff, which was amazing. Yes. Um, I just like to call it medieval nun simulator, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> Love it. Really, really good book. And I also read an early copy of Our Crooked Hearts by Melissa Albert, which is amazing. Um, it's just one of those books where like you want to reread it because there's so you feel like you're going to get something so different about like every time you read it, you feel like it's going to be like a unique experience because there's so much thought and care put into weaving these threads into the imagery and I mean I don't need to sing Melissa Albert's praises because everyone knows how amazing she is um but this book was like such a <laughs> it was a trip but it was incredible yeah so those two and I just downloaded um Spear by Nicola Griffith which I'm really really excited about which is like an Arthurian retelling and I'm I'm absolutely loving the boom of like Arthurian mythology kind of retellings I think it's awesome um, right yeah that was like I when I saw that one again these it, these retellings were you know kind of there's there's so many buckets to it so it's like mm -hmm. you know you can have it's it's like it's like a buffet you know you get your mythology um you have your fairy tales and there's even like the classics and yeah and then when I saw that I was like these just now this new boom in Arthurian legend so multifaceted so many worlds to explore, so many characters to re-explore um, that, you know, finally get their due. So really wonderful. Juniper and Thorn, everyone. This book is amazing. The Wolf and the Woodsman, amazing. Ava, thank you again. This has really been wonderful. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Uh, the Wolf and the Woodsman. <laughs> yeah, The Wolf and the Woodsman. Um, and, and Ava's newest book, Juniper and Thorn, are out now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, readers. Welcome to another 
edition of the TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Juniper and Thorn. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble home store in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I am joined by my book buddy, Becky. Hello, Becky. Hello, everybody. So we've got a couple of books to go over today. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with one of my very favorite authors. Um, This is a book called The Empress of Salt and Fortune by the amazing Nevo. Nevo was a guest on a previous episode of Poured Over, and I think it's pretty common knowledge that I am mildly obsessed with her. She's incredible. (laughs) Um, So this is a Hugo Award-winning short, short novel. It basically is a 2,000-plus page epic told at 100 pages. Um, I love it so, so much. Uh, She creates this sense of place and time and a government and a magic system and an environment that just feels so lived in that when you are plopped into this very, very short story, you're on board right away. It feels like, it kind of feels like she approached this well that's filled with Asian folklore and mythology. She dropped a bucket in, pulled it up, sifted through it a little bit, and then just poured the story right onto the page. It's stunning. So this is the first of the Singing Hills cycle. Uh, The second book is out now, and the third book will be coming out this fall, I believe. And it follows the cleric Chi and their very adorable bird companion. And their job is to travel the countryside researching stories. So this installment uh, takes them to um, a small, kind of rundown, creepy-ish village that might be haunted um and they listen to and transcribe the story of a fierce empress from her political marriage to her exile and ultimately to her vengeful rise uh it's fantastic um it is full of romance it's full of palace intrigue it is queer and magical and transportative And it's just about stories within stories within stories. It just, I want these books to always be available and to continue for the rest of my reading days. Um, And I hope you feel the same. So please check out The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Nevo. Oh, I definitely will. Yes, please do it. (laughs) Well, and you just keep raving about her uh, so much that I just, I need to I need to read something of hers. Do a deep dive. Yeah, I just, yeah, well, I might just have to take a week off and yeah. Um, so I love that you chose actually the uh, the first installment of mm-hmm. a series because I did the same. Great. Um, I went with Cinder by Marissa Meyer. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this is just a YA um, kind of steampunk um, retelling of Cinderella. And um, it's set in a futuristic China, dystopian uh, China. And we meet Cinder, who is a 16-year-old um, cyborg uh, mechanic. And huh. <laughs> she's, um, she's actually a pretty cool character. I like her a lot. Um, she meets her prince very early on. And so you kind of get that story going right off the bat uh, when uh, the prince brings his android in for repairs. Oh, So, cute. exactly. <laughs> it's adorable. Um, but, of course, they have a lot working against them. One of course, uh, one person, of course, is her evil stepmother, and um, yeah, her um, her stepmother though it's interesting. She really treats Cinder as um, because she's cyborg, 
part cyborg, uh, she is considered less than. So, uh, and she's also considered property versus a, a person. So uh, it's interesting kind of the dynamic that happens there and how the stepmother is, is treating her and then kind of the, the liberties that are taken as far as what then we make Cinder do uh, that you would never ask a, a, a person to actually do. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, yeah, there's a little bit of interest there. I will say I did like this uh, in this retelling that they did what they did in Ever After where one of the uh, evil stepsisters is not evil. Uh, and she's actually, she treats Cinder as a sister, um, as a friend. Um, yeah, uh, I love Ever After. If you haven't seen that movie, it's another Cinderella retelling. And um, just shout out to Melanie Linsky because uh, she's just the best stepsister ever. I just adore her. Anyway, I'm just going to gush. But <laughs> this, anyway, Cinder does the same thing. It's wonderful uh, that at least Cinder does have um, a few people that are friends and uh, that she's just not all by herself. So um, this is, like I said, the first of a, um, of a series. It's the first of the Lunar Chronicle series. And um, in this book, it really sets up the rest of the series because there is, of course, a big bad uh, beyond just the evil stepmother. Um, there is the evil, I guess the villain uh, uh, is Queen Lavana from Luna. And uh, Luna is basically a moon planet that, uh, that is right by earth. I think it's still earth. And, um, and so, but there's, uh, yeah, there's going to be some fighting, um, that is hinted at here, started here. But like I said, the rest of the series will then take you, uh, the rest of the way. So Cinder by Marissa Meyer, please pick it up. Oh, yes. (laughs) I like it. I like it. I like it. So we've got some retellings to tuck onto your pile uh thank you all for listening and watching pour it over um please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to us so you never miss an episode my name is mark you can follow my home store at bn westchester and you can do the same for becky hi everybody yes yes thank you all happy reading and have a wonderful day please enjoy bye pour it over is a barnes and noble production The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.